often distributors and so on are, are not necessarily the latest, most forward thinking companies, but we're seeing the next generation step up and take on and into leadership roles in those positions. So I think the combination of the leadership kind of changing and the technology picking up pace means that there's this huge open, wide open opportunity to, to make the supply chain flow so much better. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I've got Andrew, CEO and founder with me today. Andrew, do your own intro of yourself and your company. I always think the guests can do it better than me. Thank you, Ledge. Thank you for having me on. So yes, uh, Andrew Butt, I co-founded Enable initially in the UK, and we are a platform that helps companies collaborate with all their suppliers across about 50 different vertical industries, expanding out into North America in a big way. So that's what we do. And I've relocated here recently to uh, grow this rapidly. I just had that conversation off mic. So you flew in, you drove across the country or you didn't fly in, you took a ship, which yeah. is super cool. You know, you don't hear that every day anymore. And then you drove across the country and raising money and uh, doing startup life. So now you're out in Cali. Absolutely. It's great to be here. <laughs> so yeah, tell tell the ins and outs a little bit of the the business stuff of, of Enable, you know, so uh, who uses it and why and, you know, what what's that mm. sort of workflow look like? There's all kinds of SaaS now, all kinds of ways to make relationships, the whole thing. But, sure. you know, I think you guys have a unique spin on it. I'd love to shed some yeah, light on that. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, supply chain digitization is really a cliche. It's like a almost like a meaningless phrase that people have been saying for years. But the fact is that there's been a huge focus and investment on kind of e-commerce and, you know, consumers interacting with companies online. And the whole kind of supply chain has been basically neglected. And when I started to look at this, a huge percentage of global trade flows through distribution. It flows through the channel. And that is as much as, say, 75% of, of trade is actually going from manufacturers through distributors and retailers to the end consumer. And making sure those guys can collaborate well together, can put joint plans together, and can put kind of incentives together as well in that channel to make that flow and make it work well is, is a huge kind of space. And that's exactly what we've focused on. Yeah, yeah. And so walk through a couple of examples maybe on how what was the problem there, you know, that you saw in those communications and flows? And I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly worth saying that we've all seen in one way or another, the global supply chain be completely messed up over the last year and certainly the weaknesses. And I imagine you're exploiting or not exploiting, but finding some of those things and saying, hey, we can do hmm. 
better than that Absolutely. because stuff is getting stuck all over the pipe you know yeah. all over the world nothing's yeah. working right no. now so. no 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 exactly and you know there's rare companies like for example apple and tesla and a few others where they have this full vertical integration don't they where they kind of own the manufacturing and the distribution and the retail and it's all integrated but for everyone else on the planet that's not the case and so it's really important that these kind of trading partners, if you like, in the supply chain work together seamlessly to serve customers. And that's where technology plays a role. But to answer your question, Ledge, the inspiration for Enable came when I met my co-founder, a guy called uh, Dennis Short, who is a UK entrepreneur. And he was growing a distribution business very quickly, working with brands like Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Gillette, you know, all these big brands. And what, what he saw is those brands supplied 90% or more of their products to the world's biggest retailers. So, you know, Walmart, Amazon, and, and then there's a very long tail of much smaller retailers and wholesalers, which frankly are quite difficult to, to look after because there's just so many of them. And so what Dennis said is, let me create a central distribution business that sits in the middle between these manufacturers and these end customers, and I will look after all of that. And that was a very successful and is a very successful business. It's now the largest in the UK. And, and when Dennis and I met, we could see all of these kind of challenges in terms of the communication and planning across the supply chain. So that's really where the inspiration came from. I'm very happy to go into a bit more detail on how it actually works or give, give an example if you wish. Yeah, please. Uh, exactly. Yeah, how, how it works is, and we were, I guess we're largely talking about physical goods supply chain. It's a good, good point. Uh, from a B2B standpoint. Yeah, I mean, we focus a lot on physical goods and I mentioned across about 50 verticals. So it could be household, it could be, it could be uh, automotive, it could be construction products, you know, so loads of physical goods. But it does also relate to kind of software and less less tangible goods as well. Um, but yeah, let me let's give an example. So imagine you've got all these manufacturers, whether they are say Procter and Gamble, you know, making household goods, or whether they are someone making construction products. But, but you know, people that make things and they're great innovators and they produce fantastic products. But to get those products to market, they need to work with distributors, and those distributors have things like. Um, uh, lots of locations which are close to customer and they have customer relationships and so it takes both of those parties to work together and essentially the distributors are the sales teams for the manufacturers if you think you know 75 percent maybe of of manufactured goods are sold by a third party sold by a distributor so so really, to make that work, there has to be very clear trading agreements in place, which says, uh, if I'm the manufacturer and led you are the distributor, I want you to sell a particular products for me in particular parts of the US. I want you to hit certain targets, certain volumes. And if you can achieve those targets, I want to reward you, a bit like sales commission. And those are some of the key processes that we drive to, to really get those kind of distributors and manufacturers aligned and working together on the same objectives to serve serve the customer better. Right. Okay. So you can imagine, and I've done enough of, you know, sort of the global MSAs and things of that nature that I, I assume that you're solving the problem of, you know, everybody has a 65,000 page Word doc and all the lawyers have to go through it and there's no standardization. And what about this? What about that? And then we have regional limitations and we have you know all sorts of different things exclusivity non-exclusivity so you can kind of standardize that approach in a trusted platform that at least allows people to say okay these guys have they they have the the coverage they've done this before they represent other folks we can count on that transaction to be 
well documented. That's, that's all absolutely correct. And I think what's a lot more exciting than that that's layered on top is is really driving growth. So at the end of the day, both both sides, you know, manufacturers and distributors want to drive profitable growth and they don't they're just not often very joined up and very aligned. So once again, if I'm the manufacturer, I want you to really focus on this particular product. It's brand new in the market. I want you to really kind of get it into certain customers. Uh, that is not communicated well right now. So our platform enables as well as all of that technical legal uh, stuff you mentioned to actually create these incentive plans and I'll say to you when you hit a million units of this new product I will give you 10% back of all of the spends that you've you've purchased with me and that's the kind of exciting part about you know driving profitable growth yeah there's also a gamification there to the the growth then you know it's just like actually making it clear how someone could make a downstream could make a profit center out of doing a particular thing because i imagine there's you know dozens hundreds thousands of ways that those products could be deployed how would you as a business at the distributor level ever kind of really figure out what's the most profitable mix of activities that i could do in a limited resource exactly and you can really achieve a, a win 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 because at the end of the day where you have these guys working together in a more coordinated way they can serve the customer in a better way you know, the customer gets a better product, a better service, a better price, etc. But in addition to that, both manufacturer and distributor partners can make make uh, money and grow at the same time. So that's really what we're catalyzing. Got it. That's awesome. So I right, talk about the the journey you got you and your founder uh, building the company, and you know, sort of co-founder with you. And uh, what what was the team building experience like? You know, for I, I love to just hear the key lessons learned from, you know, the kitchen table moment to the, you know, sort of now we're a real thing and and we're a company and we have people and we spend lots of money and, you know, <laughs> try to make lots of money. And, you know, I just, I, I'd love to to hear those founder journeys. Sure. Yeah. So, so um, when Dennis and I started, we weren't on a kitchen table, but we were, we were in a barn. So we were on a farm in the UK, <laughs> a very nice farm and in a barn and it was him and me. And, you know, he was really doing very well with DCS, uh, the, the distribution business I mentioned. And we were starting this software company together, which would eventually become Enable as it is today. And so we had the kind of business experience from him and you know real life problems to address you know it wasn't just me as a techie as an engineer it was we had those real life problems and then and then i had some ideas and was kind of building web applications and that type of thing um we initially hired one of my friends from school believe it or not and uh, he was kind of employee number i guess number three after dennis and me and i remember the three of us being in this barn and and then we we kind of just steadily and organically grew and we were very much you know bootstrapping so so we weren't we hadn't raised investment and we were trying to find customers that had common challenges and then really use you know you get them to give us work uh, to to fund the business and and that's how it went for a while uh, we were building kind of custom software initially to meet people's needs and we eventually then found the common ground and said well look if we can actually build a product that, that can cover all these needs then we have a, the basis of a very very scalable business so i guess that was the first part of the journey yeah yeah absolutely and then what have you found to be important so I'd, are, are you a multi-time founder or first first effort and what's the how does it all fit into your you know personal journey sure yeah so 
I have found in multiple businesses, even back in that when I was kind of teenager, I, I started a business uh, building web applications and uh, building um, uh, hosting websites and registering domain names and this type of thing. And, you know, that was that was my initial experience. And but really building web applications for other companies. So so my previous business was building teams of engineers that were, were creating software for some great, great brands. And then from that, we kind of spun off a couple of businesses. So we would identify an opportunity that again someone asking for something time and time again and we'd say right let's create a product for that and actually have that spin-off one of those spin-offs was acquired by private equity in the uk uh, relatively early uh, but it was the right thing to do because there was four founders and it made sense for the the other two to kind of go down a different path but that was a you know a, a successful exit but in terms of enable this is on a whole different scale so you know we launched this business uh, as you might know we we have raised venture capital and this is on a whole new level in terms of growth rates but most importantly the size of the market the size of the opportunity and and so um you know this is certainly the the kind of uh, most exciting and and uh, largest scale business that I've I've founded so far. That's awesome, and I I love that experience that you built. You know, I hear this a lot with, uh, you know, it could be product studios or development shops or things of that nature where you know people get an experience building around different businesses and then realize there's a commonality, and then build and deploy a product that maybe can spin off, you know, and so you can become your own, you know, sort of product incubator in that way. Sometimes that's successful. Sometimes it's a total disaster because you realize that building a thing is not the same as running a business. And and yet if you can survive that, that path, I've done the same thing. You know, it, it as long as you learn how to distribute your resources well and not put tons and tons of money down, you know, on sort of one bet, you can learn the path of of that launch so that when you do find an opportunity like like enable was for you that this one will really go i know how not to make those really stupid early mistakes that um that you make you know when you're first getting off the ground i don't know if that was your experience that was certainly my experience so. yeah no that really really does resonate and uh the uh, as you said the kind of dna almost of a services company where you're you're doing things for others and charging a fee versus building a product is completely uh, opposite end of the spectrum and i think in the early days we had a kind of steady business which was profitable and it was just steadily growing but we were being pulled in a million directions because every customer wanted something a little bit different and then we kind of thought we can incubate this product to use your words and that will be great but of course in reality it's it requires huge focus and huge resources to make that work and it is very expensive uh, so we then had that kind of pivot point where we decided consciously to drop other things we were doing focus on the product and we went from being profitable to being in a burn situation and that was really the only way to do it. And we kind of crossed that chasm because we then, once we'd proven traction and we got some good initial growth rates, were able to raise some venture capital. Uh, but it was it was a, it was a risk because because you know fundamentally we took a profitable business into a loss making one, and it may have been the case that we didn't come out the other side and uh, you know didn't didn't hit the metrics. So definitely quite a key transition point. And you had to demonstrate that traction early on and sort of a as many businesses are like network and platform driven now where the the throughput and sort of the available supply and demand is is critically important to to prove the supposition so you could be right about a business but then you have this enormous 
you know, sort of need to pull in the supply and demand side in a, in a platform or, or marketplace type of, of business connected business like that, uh, in order to prove the supposition that we're right, we, you could have a good theory, but you still need to get people to behave in the way that you imagined they would behave, which is a whole psychological thing. So I mean, any insights there, because I think this is the, this is the type of thing that entrepreneurs conceive of and fail to make escape velocity with very often. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I love talking about escape velocity for sure. And I talk to our whole team about the fact that this is like a rocket where we are defying gravity and we need to go fast. And with SAS, uh, it does compound and there is momentum. So once you can get to a certain point in terms of, let's say, total recurring revenue, and you've got a strong growth rate at that point, and also churn is is you know low, and hopefully you've got you've some sort of net net positive net retention. Then you do become unstoppable. I mean, okay, we, none of us become completely unstoppable, but there's an element of unstoppability because if if the product fit wasn't you know if the product market fit wasn't there, you wouldn't be able to have retained those customers, and you wouldn't be signing up more. So, but you have got to achieve that escape velocity. You've got you've got to get to that point quickly. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I would say being very narrowly focused and having something, again, overused expression, but a minimum viable product, something which is is solving a problem in a very, very specific kind of sub-segment where maybe it's got all of these network potential in the future, but initially it's it's quite simple. It's quite a simple solution to a problem. And demonstrating traction and some growth rate with that you know, even though the numbers are going to be small, being able to show you've gone from one to two to five to 10 customers, you know, quite quickly, that really is the key. And then I think once you've got that, then then um, really, again, in my case, raising investment to sustain that that kind of velocity is, is important. And then you can build the network and build other things onto it. But I think so many of us do too much we you know human nature is to spread ourselves too thinly and and it's it's just it's hard to get anything off the ground so keep it very very focused yeah and and that's that's a good question to if you have in this type of idea it's easy to be the you know sort of starry-eyed entrepreneur imagine the future which we ought to do we ought to be thinking down the road of like all oh, these all the cool things we can do and then be able to back off to that real mvp type of idea and say what is the minimum value that I can provide that is in fact sticky and, you know, retains enough that actually the basic version of this thing provides a compelling value to a collection of, of people. And then when you're thinking about that, almost the mini, mini network, because I need in your world, you need, you know, sort of the full, at least experience of the whole supply chain in a tiny way that makes people compelled enough to stick around and use it to even wait for the next feature. Uh, that's a, it's a, it's a challenging business strategy problem. Love to dive into that more. Like, how do you figure out what that basic thing really is? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, and also we were very narrow by vertical, so you can you can build a network in one vertical in one geography. So, for example, construction products in the UK is quite defined. And there's a handful of very big distributors, so you can kind of win, 
you know most of those and go from there but no so the way i mean the way we started this product is it initially was a financial tool so uh, i mentioned briefly the incentives that flow through the supply chain and these are in the form of rebates so so if you are a distributor ledge you would receive you would receive rebates from your suppliers when you hit certain targets and these are quite difficult to calculate and difficult to track so our initial product and kind of core of our solution is a financial tool for you to calculate all of your rebates and that's something that most people are doing on spreadsheets and it's crazy that even today there's so many processes in all sizes of businesses that are run on spreadsheets where you know money is involved and money can be lost so that's what how we started um, it was providing a real utility to finance departments in every every distributor, if you like. And, and then we kind of got started getting into the network effect because we said, hang on, these rebates that we're calculating, someone is actually creating these agreements, which is the commercial team, not the finance team. And they are having to get them signed off by the other side. You know, they're creating the agreement and then it's being signed off by the supplier. So can we get the suppliers actually being invited by our customers to our software? And then can they log in and view these agreements? So that's where the network started to come in. But I agree with you that if we just started with a network and none of that financial capability, it would have been, you would have had to get such a critical mass and it's a chicken and egg. So that's what we did. Start with a basic utility for, for finance that has a real kind of ROI attached to it. It's not very, not that exciting, but there's a need there. And then look at how you can build a network and an ecosystem around that. I love that. Yeah. And I think that's a really important lesson. Effectively being a targeted point solution that solves a real problem that one little group cares about. Then look at the tangent problem that another close by group cares about and then connect the dots there internally. You still haven't left, you haven't built the external network. But now we start to solve problems that are compelling enough that you can, that customer can see the demand and say, I wish that my external party was connected to this. And so you have a demand-based network creation whereby you're already providing some value that somebody is paying for and you can subsidize the network creation with, with effectively with revenue then. Absolutely. And, you know, even at our current scale, we're now kind of 150 plus people and, uh, you know, uh, in Canada and US and Europe and we've got customers all over the world. And, and we've got tens of thousands of, of organizations that they've set up within our product. But even at our current scale, our core business model is still selling a subscription to use our, our core product. And the network is still kind of almost we're making progress and it is working, but it's still the next thing. So what I'm trying to say is even at our current scale, we're not kind of relying on that network to be the core revenue. It's, it's really more the future opportunity. And yet being able to go out and say, you know, look at this future opportunity. This is a great story to be telling investors as you raise, you know, the capital to grow sales, grow marketing yeah. and grow product. That yes. makes for a really compelling mix that people can say, okay, you already built the thing. Now let's yeah. connect the thing. Yes. Using my money to connect the thing yeah. and thereby continue to grow the thing it's makes a risk. hell of a lot more yeah. sense. It yeah, is, yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's the story that gets lost a lot, you know, on the business side for you're trying to raise money or trying to scale a business, particularly when you set out only and say, you know, you don't want to build the first fax machine because it doesn't work. And that's an old metaphor because probably people don't even know what a fax machine is anymore. But, you know, if, <laughs> that was the 
that was the way to originally think about the network problem and effect. Yes. You know, who bought the first one? It doesn't yes. do anything unless you're connected to one on the other side. Exactly. If you can build a business that solves a problem and then connect the people later that, that have the problem, I think that's really, you know, sort of the compelling mix that you can then abstract that to other business models. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. So talk about growing the leadership team, you know, from the beginning. I think that that's another huge topic. Uh, Sometimes I talk to founders who are sort of like, hey, I brought, you know, my uh, I brought my crew along from all the other adventures. And sometimes it's you actually did, you know, sort of build it new from the beginning or some mix of the two. I, and I love to hear those stories, because when you do reach a certain point, it's it's really it's key to get those right people that when you finally as a founder can say, I've got to let go of this thing. I sure don't want to. You know, but you reach that point where you can't do everything and then there have to be key people. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So so we have some great people and some of those have been around since the beginning and uh, have kind of uh, I've worked with them in previous kind of companies before we launched this enable kind of product. And so that's been great. And obviously they're trusted and they've kind of grown with me and so on. But then having a hybrid where you also bring in talent from the outside that, that kind of, you know, done it, done it before talent uh, is is important. And again, I've been very fortunate. We've been able to hire a couple of very uh, experienced leaders actually quite recently who have, you know, grown from probably where we are now through to IPO and beyond in multiple relevant companies before in different functions. So for example, go to market and also product and and others. So I think my job as a CEO is to create the the right hybrid where we we've got we've got a combination of some of some of our homegrown talent which is very strong and really knows the company and the culture and the values and you know what made us great so far but also bringing in that experience of how of, of getting to the next stage because that's not experience that i necessarily have or, or my original kind of co-founding team had so that's the that's the thing create that balance and create that hybrid Sure. What were the key areas that you had to grow kind of in order? Because there's, you know, sort of the got to grow revenue. So I need sales and, you know, I need marketing and, uh, but I also have to keep product up and then, oh, there's this thing I didn't even know about called customer success and, you know, scaling and customer operations and, oh, support. I forgot about that too. And, you know, and that's what my experience has been is like, you're sort of running around the mountain, trying to push all the boulders, you know, in sort of equal stepwise fashion and there's always the next thing that you need to fix so it doesn't break because of what you just did before yeah, yeah no that sounds familiar <laughs> uh, so i think you know our roots is, is we were a software engineering company and i i was a engineer and uh you know uh, again uh, i mentioned my the guy i went to school with he joined this for our first employee really and, and that was his background so so actually you know as we went into enable and kind of build this product we we had a strong engineering team and the product was strong and that that was all that was our real strength i think what was our weakness is we we weren't marketeers and we weren't salespeople and we we hadn't you know that's just not something we'd done so to answer your question it, it was really important to bring in a, a very experienced revenue leader who could look at how do we build distribution and and you know jerry started with us earlier this year great guy with amazing experience and the first thing he said is we have a distribution problem here because we've got great product market fit we know that because our retention is almost 100 percent. we've hardly lost any customers we're growing our customers uh, the, there's a very little competition and and so that's all great the product works very well we've got high volume high scale uh, it performs 
teams, okay, but we just have hardly any salespeople. So we need to build distribution. So I think that's the that was what happened next of starting to really build that distribution. And then we will, as you say, get quickly back to, okay, you know, where does that leave us in terms of engineering and products and how do we scale up to the next stage? So that will no doubt be coming next. Right. And that onboarding thing happens all the time. It's like, you know, we're adding customers faster than we can support them which is sort of one of those beautiful problems that can get you in trouble later because then then retention is largely, you know, sort of linked to that customer experience and, and customer success and the touch points and, you know, all those things. And it's just, it, it never... It never runs out of stuff to put on the the CEO's desk. <laughs> no, exactly. Because the first the first thing is really, can we create something which which works, uh, which which solves a problem? So that's kind of the first stage. And then it's really, okay, we've solved this problem for a handful of companies, and it, they're very happy. Uh, but is there actually a real market out there? You know, c- can we sell this? Can we get a, a lot of people to sign up? And so that's the next stage. And then the next stage is to your point, right? Now we've proven we can get loads of companies that want to sign up and are signing up. Can we actually onboard them, support them, retain them? So I completely agree. And and we are definitely, we've kind of done the first bit, done the second bit, if you like. And now we're, we're doing well at the third bit, but it's it's our customer numbers are going up significantly. So it's, it's something I'm looking at very closely. Yeah, absolutely. What are the key metrics that you do look at to, and I always think about like the KPIs change based on like roughly on that, sort of uh, what order of magnitude are you at? You know, so uh, on the on the human side, growing your company, it's you, you track different things when you're 15 versus 150 people. Um, on the customer side, you know, you track it based on, you know, sort of 10x of revenue or uh, and the next 10x of revenue. And so what what are the key things that you watch for when when you know you're almost at an inflection point of appropriate KPIs? Mm, sure. Well, I mean, one of the one of the people, my heroes that I follow is is Frank Slootman, who uh, ran ServiceNow and Data Domain, and now is at Snow, CEO of Snowflake, and you know, just amazing, probably the world's best CEO. And you know, one of his things is is actually, when you boil it down, there's there's not that many metrics, and the top one is is kind of. Uh, 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 net new revenue and also net retention; those, those would be two. Because with net new revenue, it it does cover all things. You know, if your customers are not happy, they will be churning, and that massively impacts your your revenue growth. And then, of course, getting new customers is critically important as well. So I find I can get the whole company to rally behind that. And you know, products and engineering are working on where are our product gaps that will cause customers to churn or cause us not to win customers. Where, where's our performance and security and scalability that will harm us? Customer success are thinking about what are we doing to make sure customers are happy, they're meeting their objectives, and they're not churning, and hopefully they're expanding. And then sales is thinking about new new customers. So I think net new ARR net retention are really the top the top KPIs that I look at. Right, net new ARR would be then like uh, the gross value, and then if you're looking at it, you would look at the percentage change and even the change in the percentage change. You know, sort of over time there to see uh, is our growth rate, you know, stabilizing is our growth rate going crazy. Yeah, so. Um, very important. Yeah, and and I think you know the way I look at it is is it's so important to make sure growth is over 100% year over year. I mean that escape velocity in the very early days it's a lot higher than that, but as it starts to settle down, then 100% year over year is important, which is 20% quarter over quarter. And there's, the great thing about SaaS is all the benchmarks are available, so we can go and look at every SaaS company and what their growth rate is. You know, upper quartile, lower quartile, but that that really is the trajectory that we have to be on or above to 
you know, maintain this escape velocity. How did you pick up all this stuff coming out of the engineering realm? Because I think, you know, it's a, it's a different body of, of knowledge to be able to be a SaaS CEO. And many, many technologists and product folks find themselves heading that direction. The technology founder, you know, paradigm is is well known and respected and then sort of add the revenue guy later. And, you're, you know, you're talking about a a playbook that has been run before, but it, nobody teaches you when you're coding and building product about all these metrics that you just spouted off. So what was that learning journey for you? Yeah, I, I probably overstated my my engineering capabilities. <laughs> I think, um, you know, I, I, I my personal interest as I was kind of growing up and so on was always around computers and, and computing and programming. So I, I taught myself programming early and built things, but I ne was never, you know, I never was employed as a kind of professional engineer and the engineers we employ are a thousand times better than I ever was. So, but that's how I, that was just my interest in computing generally. And then the other thing I was always interested in was business. And my father ran accountancy firms, for example, and he had lots of small business customers. So I was interested in business. And as I got to know business and meet company, meeting people, meeting customers and building applications and programs for them, I found I was more interested in their business than I was in building building software. So that's when I then developed my interest in business in general and realized I, I wanted to you know, really build a big business myself. So I then just absorbed the knowledge really that, you know, SaaS is such a huge industry now, isn't it? And it's, it was so many people running SaaS, you know, so many SaaS companies around. So I guess I've just absorbed, but I, I am very attracted to business and meeting people and understanding, you know, what, what makes them tick. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I resonate with the story. I was a, a fairly accomplished coder for years and discovered that I, I love the business stuff as well. And then I discovered that I was pretty good at the business stuff, even though I was really good at coding, there seemed to be less people that were business oriented around at least my circles. So, well, I guess I'll give up that coding thing that I really enjoy and kind of explore and move further. And for now, I can't write a, if I write a line of code, I'd be uh, surprised at this point. But uh, I, I do think that having as an entrepreneur, having touched many bases and worked in many areas of the business, I can, you know, have a, I find generalists are, are obviously, you know, sort of on that track where you can talk about any area of the business. So if you had to run marketing or you had to run finance or you had to run product, you probably could do that, you know, in a convincing way. And that's, that itself is a skill to be, uh, you know, sort of a mile wide and a few inches deep. Yeah, that's true. And also I think, Building a business is a bit like coding some software, isn't it? Because you're, you know, it's his creation, it's his creative. So building software is, is very creative. And I enjoyed, again, in the, the fairly limited capacities that I had there, I enjoyed building computer programs uh, back in the day and, and then building a business and arch architecting the business. I think there's some parallels there. Absolutely. I love that. Well, to put on your futurist hat for a sec, we usually finish up that way and spend a few minutes on on the, the what's next for, for you. Uh, for the business, you know, what do you see in the space? Uh, it's obviously been a, a year or two of outlandish levels of change. I don't think that any of us ever imagined. So love to get your feedback, you know, from the ground on that. Yeah. So I think in the market that we're in, it, it, there's just huge opportunity because when I started this, this uh, discussion with you, Ledge, I was saying this cliche of 
supply chain digitalization, but it really is happening uh, in terms of the availability of, of technology and things like blockchain and things which really kind of lend themselves to this, but also the readiness of companies in that supply chain. So often distributors and so on are, are not necessarily the latest, most forward thinking companies, but we're seeing the next generation step up and take on and into leadership roles in those positions. So I think the combination of the leadership kind of changing and the technology picking at pace means that there's this huge open wide open opportunity to to make the supply chain flow so much better so that's very exciting and then for us as a company specifically you know we're in a very fortunate position we've got great customers we've got a great team you know i've been very fortunate to attract some some top talent into the business and we've also got great investors behind us who I'm, you know, and, and they have big confidence in us. We have a very uh, great board who's very confident. So we kind of have all the ingredients now, uh, you know, to, to drive this business forward. Uh, so, so um, yeah, I think the future is exciting. We are going to continue scaling our customer base and kind of, again, building distribution for the products we have today. But some of the network type opportunities I mentioned to you, that, that will all be layered on top. And that, that will be, you know, a big, big thing to come over the next 18 months. Exciting times. I, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on and, and telling the story, sharing insights. Andrew, if, if folks are listening and want to get in touch with you personally or, or for the company, what are the best channels for that? Well, LinkedIn is probably my favorite uh, platform uh, personally. So I'm on LinkedIn. And if you go to our website, it's enable.com. So it's very simple. And it has all of the social media icons, including LinkedIn. So you can get to me. And gets the company very easily just just enable.com that's awesome uh, i a totally different story on how to acquire a domain name like that and what you yeah. must have paid for a lot less <laughs> we'll a lot less for the next thing so uh, <laughs> but no that's a good a good a good uh, win okay. Okay. well played well played awesome andrew thanks for hanging out yeah thanks for having me thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the leaders of b2b podcast if you enjoyed the show please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. Mm-hmm.